You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. We're going to be reading here in just a moment from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Before we get there, though, I feel like I've, I've had this discussion uh, many times recently, and I just wanted to speak into it just about the Bible and about the authority of Scripture and what the Bible is and you know, how the Old Testament works and how the New Testament works, or do the words of Jesus have more authority than uh, the rest of the Bible? And so I just wanted to speak into that for a few minutes this morning. The way we understand Scripture, and the way we understand Scripture is the way that Christians throughout the centuries have understood uh, the Bible. And in fact, when people start understanding the Bible in a different way, eventually that group of people always, I mean, this has been proven throughout Uh, church history always ends up leaving Christianity or or fading away from what we would call orthodoxy or the true confession of the Christian faith. But the way that we understand uh, scripture, and and you'll hear me saying this when I'll say, you know, the apostle Paul or the prophet Moses or the disciple John wrote these things, and you'll hear me say this uh, before I preach, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I always say this, and therefore these things come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us, okay? And that's an important thing. I I don't just say that uh, to say it. It's an important thing to say. And and the reason that I say that is that we believe, and when Jesus, for example, said in John 14, uh, I've instructed you on many things, but I'm going to instruct you on everything through my spirit. When my spirit comes, he's going to continue this instruction, if you will. You know, when Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, explains the Old Testament and, and shows how all things that have been written in the Old Testament are actually fulfilled in him, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Second Timothy, that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Paul has in mind there, actually, when he writes that about all scripture being breathed out by God and it's for its usefulness and how good it is, he's actually mostly talking about the scripture that the church had at that time, which, of course, was the Old Testament. I believe by implication he's talking about the the new revelation, the clarifying revelation of the New Testament that was coming. But, But the point of all of this, what I'm saying here, is when Jesus says that my spirit's going to come and going to instruct the church, what he is saying is that the spirit has come. He has come and he's inspired Old Testament authors like, like Moses um, and, and all of these, old, like David, like all these Old Testament authors who have come before. He's inspired them. He's given them the word of God. And he is saying the Spirit's going to come and he's going to bring New Testament authors like, like Paul and like John and, and like Mark and all of these others. And, and all of this is my word. All of this is my word. I'm using all of this to instruct you, to teach you, to encourage you. So, as, I, as, he, as Paul says in, first, in 2 Timothy there, so that you may be complete, equipped for every good word. And so, one of the things I say, one of the things I want for us as a church is when you're listening to me preach, when you're listening to us read the scripture aloud, when you're reading the Bible just in your own personal devotion time, when you're reading the Bible with your families, I hope that in the word... I hope that in these words you hear kind of a faint Galilean accent in the background. That it's not just the word of your dad that's reading the Bible to you. It's not just my voice that's reading to you. It's not just the the voice, whatever the voice inside your head is. It's actually the word of Christ. It's the voice of Christ that's speaking to you, that's, that's encouraging you. 
So with that in mind, our scripture reading for today comes from Philippians 4. These words are written by the by Paul, the apostle, they come to us today under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together, and I say this intentionally, the word of Christ. Philippians chapter 4, and I'll read the whole chapter. This is a magnificent, magnificent passage of scripture. Uh, I'll give some insights on it here in just a little bit, but listen as I read aloud. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree together in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if anything that is, is worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned that in whatever situation I am in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for me, for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the rich of his, his glory in Jesus to our God and Father, be glory and forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with uh, me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I love this little book. And of course, we come today to our last uh, study. We've been here for five weeks, and, and you could we could have spent months in the book of Philippians. But I love this passage of scripture, as I said. It's Paul's final thoughts to this church. If you remember from the first week, we talked about the, book, the, the church at Philippi. It was a church that Paul himself had planted 10 years before. It was a church that he loved, that he was called to. Remember the Macedonian call? He was called there, and, and God just gave him great grace in this, in this town called Philippi. He planted this wonderful church. They had supported him. They had loved him. He had loved them. He had been praying for them. He says here of them in chapter 4, you are my joy and my crown. Think about that. To be the crown of Paul's ministry, of all the ministry that God enabled Paul to do. He is saying, this is, this is, these are my guys. 
The, the people at Philippi, these, this is the church that I, that, that is the crown of my ministry, that is the chief of my ministry. And here he is writing them this letter. He's probably, we believe, in Rome, in prison, and as you know, facing death. And I think that Paul has a hunch. This is probably one of the last things I'm going to say to them. This is kind of it. This is, this is my last chance for the, the folks at Philippi. This is my last chance to instruct them, to teach them, to offer them advice. I, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You know, th- you know this is it. You know this is the last thing you're going to say to someone. Or maybe you've been on the other end. This is the last thing you're ever going to hear uh, from someone. I've definitely had those moments where you get that sense. You're moving along. You know, even as a pastor, I was sharing earlier at our volunteer meeting, even as a pastor, when I've, when I've, had, when I've been called away from churches to leave churches, man, that last sermon, you're like, man, this is the last thing these guys are going to hear from me as their pastor. It's an incredibly weighty thing. And those things, if you take them seriously, uh, you know, they, they stay with you. I was watching the last scene of uh, Saving Private Ryan not too long ago. And remember the Saving Private Ryan, you know, Captain Tom Miller, John Miller rather, Tom, played by Tom Hanks. A group of soldiers go out, they find Private Ryan. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, and I'm spoiling it for you, it's 20 years old. So I feel like we're past the statute of limitations there. But, but anyway, they, you know, they find Private Ryan. They're incredibly courageous. In the process, they end up saving this bridge. But, but also in the process of finding the private, they uh, lose a bunch of their men along the way. And in the very end, even John Miller, even the captain is dying. And that is a great last scene. He's, he's just about to die. And he's, he's looking there at you know, Matt Damon, who's uh, Private Ryan in the movie, and he says, earn this, earn this. And of course, the end of the movie is Private Ryan at the end of his life as an older man, looking at the grave of John Miller, remembering what he had told him. Those words had stuck with him his entire life. This is what this is. This is Paul's, this is Paul's earn this moment with the church at Philippi, saying, look, I got one last shot, my last chapter probably that I'm ever going to say to you. I am in prison. I'm probably going to be killed. And here's, here's the advice. Here's the phrase that he says to them. Church at Philippi, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Do not be tossed back and forth by the winds of this world. Don't be so up and down. Don't be so unsettled stand firm in the Lord don't put your confidence in your flesh don't put your confidence in your achievement don't put your confidence in the small things in the fragile things of this world rather church at Philippi no you be a people who stands firm in the Lord you be a people who is strong in the Lord now this seems like such a a simple command Such a simple command, but it is so liberating if you really understand what Paul is saying here. It is so massive if you really understand what Paul is doing here. If if you're familiar with the writing of Paul, he does this. He has these big kind of endings to his letters. He gives you, he takes you on these long paths, and then he just like drops something on you at the very end. Remember how he ends 1 Corinthians? He has this long, you know, all of this instruction of the church at Corinth, and then in the end, he 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 starts mocking death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In this long passage on the resurrection. You know, I mean, just think about that. Who, Who mocks death? But Paul says, because of the resurrection, because of the power of the applied resurrection of Jesus, you can be confident, church at Corinth, even in the face of death. 
We've been studying Romans chapter 12 throughout this whole year. Remember that. It's this amazing, it's a long passage, 11 chapters. Paul's giving them the gospel. He gets to chapter 12 and he says this big exhortation. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may know the will of God. You can, you can have the mind of God. It's a big, liberating, amazing exhortation that Paul gives. You know, I'm, I'm preaching this uh, D now for a guy in, in uh, August, and he asked me to preach through Galatians, which is kind of hard to do, like, on the three sermons of a D now. But I, I love Galatians because, again, it's one of these big exhortations at the end. You know, you, he goes through the whole book of Galatians, and he's, in the very end he says, look, you have been called to freedom. In Christ you can be free. You can, you can actually be who you have been designed to be by the God of this universe. And here, in Christ, because of what Christ has done for you, you can be strong. You can stand firm. You don't have to be, you don't have to be so fragile. You don't have to be so tossed back and forth. You can, you can have courage. Well, what Paul is, is recognizing here is something that is, that is so foundational. You know, Paul is, is a master of human psychology. He, he gets how humans work. Um, he studies human beings, and this is a good thing for us to do. You know, I, I, there's an old illustration that's helpful in this. You know, we are so used to just being human beings that it's good for us to step back and, and say, okay, why do I do this? How, how am I actually thinking through this? Why, how is my mind working these things out? He's stepping back, if you will, from the beam of light. There's this old illustration that, you know, talks about, you know, studying a beam of light. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, um, You've, you've seen these same kind of things. We had this old shed behind my house, and I was scared of it, and there were spiders in there. But if you closed the door of the shed, there was cracks in the ceiling and the wall, and you could see, like, in the dust, like, after you'd cut the grass, like, the beam of light, like, cutting through the shed. You know what I'm talking about. And it's interesting. It's interesting to see a beam cutting through the darkness like that. Usually you're just in the light. But to actually step back and, and look at how the light kind of cuts through the darkness is fascinating. And this is exactly what Paul does. He, he looks at us. He looks at how people work and, and how we understand the world and how we're living our lives. And what he understands is this. Everyone is standing somewhere. Everyone is standing on something. You are, you are finding your strength. You're finding your foundation somewhere on something. You have your identity somewhere. This is what Paul knows about you and about me. Your identity is somewhere. You, you came here today standing on something. For some of us, it's our job. You know, I, I, I'm, we get a lot of identity from our job, right? I mean, think about even like our last names. You know, for most, uh, you know, most of us from an Anglo-Saxon kind of descent, what, where does the... Where does your name come from? Where do these old like kind of English names come from? You know, farmer. Baker, right? Miller. These are all jobs. These are all professional names that people uh, took on. This is my identity now. So for some of us, it's your job. For some of us, it's relationships that you're in. Maybe a friend group, people that you find your identity with. This is who I am. This is my identity. For some of us, it's our reputation. You know, I'm known as this, I'm known as that. For some of us, our wealth, we find our identity and security in our wealth. And, and what Paul is saying here is, listen, all of these things, Philippians, all of these things, Christ's covenant, all these things can be easily taken away from you. 
You may be standing on these things, but they're so fragile. Rather, here's my final exhortation, stand in the Lord. Find your identity in the Lord. The, the rock that can never be moved, the, the, the anchor that can never be taken away from you. Stand in the one who is eternal. Stand in the one who is before all things. Stand firm in the Lord. And don't be enticed away by lesser and more fragile footrests. The, um, the problem, though, that we have here in Atlanta, Buckhead in particular, is that everyone around us is saying a real foundation, a better foundation, is found when you stand on, and here in Atlanta, it's productivity, you've heard me say this before, it's productivity or awesome experiences, right? If you really wanna be important, if you really wanna be strong, be productive, close the deal, Show your, build a big business. Show yourself that you have made a name of yourself by doing something. Be, be productive. Go out and do something that people are going to say, wow, he really did something. That is where a firm foundation is. But that's the message that we have all the time. Or it's awesome experience, right? It's productivity or awesome experience. So either be productive or be doing something awesome. You know, nobody in Buckhead shares their trip to Dollywood on their Instagram feed, you know? It's got to be something awesome. Like, it's got to be, it's got to be at least better than Dollywood, right? And so be productive or do something awesome, and that'll give you an identity. That'll give you a place to stand. And again, don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with productivity. Productivity is good. It's commended in Scripture, experiencing the world. These are good things. But if you are standing there, if you're finding your identity there, if that is where your confidence and rest comes from, it's a very fragile place, Paul says. And you will live this up and down life and you won't have peace and you'll be anxious and you'll be nervous. Stand in the Lord, the anchor that is never moving. As he says, he overlaps themes all over his writing. As he says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Don't be led away by lesser things. Find your strength in the Lord. This is, this is the last word. This is Paul's earn this moment with the Philippians. Stand in the Lord. And what he does really for the rest of the chapter is he teaches them how to do that. How do you stand in the Lord? How do you find your feet anchored in an identity in Christ? Now again, each of these, you know, I was saying to a group earlier, Philippians, it's People memorize a lot of verses. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you, you've probably memorized a lot of the verses from uh, Philippians chapter 4. It's just like when you get your like little Christian memory verse card stack, like a lot of Philippians 4 is in that stack. These are very, very popular messages, popular verses. But what, really what they are is they're exhortations on how to stand in the Lord, how to have your identity in the Lord, how to have your identity in the unmovable mover who is Jesus the Lord. So the first, if you want to stand in the Lord, Paul's first exhortation here is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now again, this is an interesting passage. To rejoice in something doesn't seem like something you can command, right? 
It doesn't seem like an, an, an imperative action. It, it, it's more of a responsive term, right? So it's, it, you think of rejoice more like, you know, he rejoiced when he got the promotion or she rejoiced when her boyfriend proposed. But no, this is saying you rejoice. You rejoice in the Lord. You don't have to wait around for something good to happen. You don't have to manipulate something great to happen in your life. You can just, if you really know the power of God, if you really know the goodness of God, you can just rejoice in the Lord. And again, Paul is he's a master of human psychology. He, he knows that we are hardwired to rejoice in something. We're hardwired we need something to make us feel good, right? We need something to make us feel important. We need something, we need an interesting person around us. We need someone to talk to. We, we need uh, something to be doing that we feel good about. We need people to like our Instagram post. Paul knows this. He understands human psychology. And so what he's saying here is if you're going to stand firm in the Lord, begin by finding that in the Lord, by rejoicing in the Lord. I remember when this concept first started making sense to me. It's a different passage, but again, Paul's overlapping all the time. It's from 1 Thessalonians 5.16, where Paul just says, be joyful always, right? Same thing. Some translations actually say, rejoice always. And I remember thinking, like, what, what is that passage? It doesn't say, hope to God that your circumstances are such that you will want to rejoice. No, it just says, rejoice. Always. You just go rejoice. You just go be joyful. And what this is saying is, if you truly know the treasure that is Christ, if your identity is in him, then you can find joy in that. Then you can just rejoice in that. That can be your joy. And I remember I, remember I was in college when I first started kind of thinking about this. And this is going to sound so silly, what I'm about to share with you all. But this is like one of the ways that I applied it to my life. And I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm even a little embarrassed to share this, but I'll share it. Because I think it's, I want to help you apply this. I remember, so when I was in college, I would always wait for someone to walk to class with me, right? Because I needed to rejoice in something, right? We're hard, we need to rejoice in something, right? And so I, I needed an interesting person to talk to on the way to class, or I wanted to be seen when I got to the concourse there at Auburn with an interesting person, right? I needed something to rejoice in, right? And I remember like understanding this, man, I, I don't need somebody to walk to class with me. I can just rejoice in the Lord. I can just use this time to commune with the Lord on my way to class and find joy in him. Again, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds silly to even apply that. And you guys are probably much more spiritually mature than I am now or I was then, but it was, it was so liberating for me. Wait a second, there is enough joy in the Lord at all times that I'm not so needy. You know, I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to get a dopamine fix all the time. I can, I can just be joyful in the Lord. And again, this was the year 2000 before we had smartphones. You know, now you go to a college campus and you know what everybody's doing? People don't walk to class with people anymore, right? They just walk to class like this, you know. But no, there's enough joy in the Lord. I'm not, I don't have to be so fragile that I can just rejoice in him, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, and it's almost as if he has like our generation in mind. He's like, in case you get distracted, I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So if you want to be strong in the Lord, begin by rejoicing in the Lord. The second thing, verse 5, it says, 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, this word reasonable, this is ESV that I'm reading. The NIV says, let your gentleness be known. The KJV says, let your moderation be known. The NLT says, let your consideration be known. And I stopped looking after that. So I don't know what translation you have. It may be a totally different word. And so what does that mean? What does it mean when it means that the Greek word epiakis, which is the words being translated here, is a hard word to translate. But I think all of these words actually are, are really, really helpful. I, maybe moderation is the best. Um, maybe consideration is the best. But here, here's what Paul's trying to say here, if, if we could kind of get our little Greek caps on. What he is saying is... Be, understand how to use your strength. Understand how to use your gifts. You don't have to constantly be proving yourself. You don't have to constantly be showing off. Understand how to live with other people, with, with them in mind. Be considerate. You know, use moderation. You know, be gentle. I mean, all these words are, are kind of helpful. In seminary, we, we had what we called the cage rule. And basically what it means is when you give someone a theological education, a really good theological education, you need to put them in a cage for about two years because all they want to do is just go around and correct like everyone they've ever known in their life about how wrong they are in their theology. They've been given a tool. They've been given strength, right? And they don't know how to use it. They're not wise. They're not mature. They, they don't have consideration. This is, this is what Paul is talking about here. Let, don't be like that. Don't, don't be flexing all the time, right? Uh, live in moderation. Live in reasonableness. Let this be known to all. Now, he's not saying Christians be passive. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying be passive always. No, he's just saying know how to use your gifts. And there's a time to use the gifts that the Lord's given you, and there's a time to not use your gifts. Be considerate of the people that are around you moving them in, in the direction that, that they need to go, but in a considerate way. Know how to use the tools, if you will. For example, you know, a rebuke is a good Christian tool. We need to be rebuked. We need to be corrected. But we don't always need to be rebuked, right? Sometimes we just need encouragement. Sometimes we just need grace. Sometimes we need somebody just to look over a sin, right? Some, but, you know, encouragements, these are great tools too, but sometimes we need rebuke, right? It's like tools, right? If you just need to beat something, you need a hammer, right? A hammer is a great tool, but it's a bad tool if you're trying to paint your house. You know, if you want to paint your house, you need a brush. And a brush is a horrible tool if you're trying to drive a screw, right? You need a drill or a screwdriver for that. This is what Paul is saying here. You have different gifts. No, no, be wise enough to know how to use them. In other words, you're going to have, the Lord is going to give you gifts. The Spirit's going to give you gifts. Don't find your identity in those things. Don't be strong in those things. Be strong in the Lord. Find your identity in Him. Let your reasonableness be known to all, and, and then you'll, you'll know how to use the gifts that He's given you. The third thing, then, is the power of prayer. This is, again, one of these famous verses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Again, this is similar to the first exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. Again, Paul, master student of human psychology, he knows the human mind. He knows that we have a tendency to worry. He knows we have a tendency to be fearful. He knows we have a tendency to be anxious. And you know why? You know why we're anxious? You know why we're fearful? You're, you're fearful, you're anxious when you find yourself in a situation when you're not in control. Right? That's why anybody gets anxious, is because you find yourself in a situation you can't control, and it makes you nervous, it makes you anxious, it makes you fearful, it makes you, uh, it makes you uh, full of anxiety. And this could be a small thing, it could be a big thing. You know, it could be a massive thing. That it's, it's a legitimate thing to be afraid of that you're, that you're fearful of, that's causing anxiety. For, for a lot of us, a lot of times it's very small things that don't really matter that much that causes great anxiety. But what's interesting in this passage... Paul, again, he doesn't say, pray to God that he will change your circumstances so that the big thing that you're afraid of will go away, right? And then you won't be anxious anymore. No, he just says, don't be anxious. <laughs> it's an exhortation. Again, anxiety, fear, we think of these things as a response, right? Well, this big thing happened and therefore I got afraid. This big thing happened and therefore I got nervous. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, 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 look. Don't be anxious, but pray. And what is he saying with that? He's, here's what he's saying. You're anxious because you feel like you're out of control. What Paul is saying, pray so that you can remember that you're not in control anyway. Pray so that you can remember how out of control you really are, but that you know the one who is in control, but that you know the one that that rules over all. And he doesn't say, when you pray, God's gonna fix it. Don't be anxious, just pray. God will make it better. That's not what he says. It's interesting. All he says is when you pray, when you acknowledge the Lord, when you, when you quit trying to have control over the situation that's making you anxious and you just look to the one who's in control of every situation, what he says in verse seven is, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. That is a beautiful passage of scripture. If you want to stand in the Lord, if you want to be strong in the Lord, if you don't want to be a fragile person that's tossed back and forth, remember, discipline yourself to focus on the Lord in prayer, to remember that he's in control of everything and you're not really in control of anything. And what it says is when you do that, you will have poise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, well, what does it do? It guards your heart. It keeps you from being out of control. It keeps you from losing control. If you want to stand firm in the Lord, be looking to the Lord in prayer. Do you want to be strong? I, I, I am very serious right now. Do you want to be a strong person? A person that people say, man, that person is strong. They have poise. They have peace. I am just going to give you the greatest advice I can is be disciplined in prayer. Have a disciplined prayer life. Begin your day with prayer. Be disciplined in prayer. And I'm not just talking, you know, I was driving in the car and I thought of something, I prayed for it for a few minutes. Do that, but, but be intentional in your prayer life. Still yourself before the Lord in your prayer. It, it will change your life. There, there is a guy in Alabama uh, that some of y'all know. Uh, it's a guy named Frank Barker. And he was pastor of this church there called Briarwood Presbyterian Church. And Frank Barker in the annals of the kingdom of God, 
has had such enormous impact on the kingdom of God. I mean, he, Briarwood's this amazing church in Birmingham. It started the school, the church. Uh, that church has planted churches. In fact, Perimeter Presbyterians, some of y'all know Perimeter Pres here in Atlanta. Briarwood basically planted Perimeter Pres. Redeemer Presbyterian, you know, Tim Keller, some of y'all know him, New York. Briarwood, I mean, not, not alone, but basically they planted that church in New York City. I mean, this church in, in Birmingham, Alabama, led by this guy, Frank Barker, it's just enormous impact for the kingdom of God. They planted churches all over Birmingham, all over Alabama. And here's the deal. You ever meet Frank Barker? Frank is about the most unimpressive guy you'll ever meet. And I say that in the best way possible. There's nothing impressive about him. Uh, he doesn't have a big personality. To be honest, you know, to be honest, he's not really that great of a preacher. He, he just kind of preaches simple, you know, kind of boring sermons. And, uh, you know, he, he's not like a scholar. You know, it's not like he's, like, done all these, like, amazing scholarly works. He's just a guy. He's just a guy. But there's a couple things about Frank. He's a hard worker. So, I mean, I can't say that about him. The guy works incredibly hard. But he's focused on two things. He's focused on disciple-making. He's, he is, I mean, you talk to anybody in Birmingham, he's somewhere in their, like, Christian lineage. Frank Barker's name is in there somewhere. In fact, even now, he's 86 years old, and, you know, I lived in Birmingham, I was pastoring. You know, I always see Frank in, like, a Cracker Barrel somewhere, you know, meeting with a guy. So he's always, he's always making disciples, and, and, but the big thing about Frank is he, this guy is the, has the most disciplined prayer life of anyone I know. And uh, he has all these tricks. I mean, I can't go through it. He has all these, he's just this prayer warrior. He is so disciplined in his prayer life. And here's the thing about Frank. I mean, he's been in ministry a long time. He's 86 now. He's done all these amazing things. He's had some really low lows, as all of us do, especially guys that have been in ministry that long. He's had some really high highs because God's used him to do amazing things. But none of that affects him. He's not finding his identity in his successes or in his failures. No, he's just, a, because he is so disciplined in prayer, he is standing in the Lord. He sees himself, he really sees himself as a son of the Almighty God. That's what prayer does. It anchors you with the Lord. It focuses you on what your real strength is. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is just so evident in this man's life. If you want to be anchored, if you want to be strong in the Lord, begin by rejoicing in the Lord know how to use your gifts, understand this amazing power of prayer. But lastly, guard your minds. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's a question. What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your mind with? Are you filling your mind with things that are pure and just and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise? Are you filling your mind with these things? Here's the deal. You're, you're all being discipled. I always say this. Everyone's being discipled all the time. You're being discipled by something. You're being influenced by something. You know, people say to me, I have people say to me all the time, I don't have time for discipleship. You know, I, don't, I just don't have time for a disciple group. I don't have time for, you know, Bible study and prayer. I don't have time for these kinds of things. I don't have time for discipleship. You know, I barely have time to, to get to church every once. I don't have time. 
And I just want to set you free from that, okay? I said this last week. This is a basic rule. This is human economics, human psychology 101. Ready? Basic rule. Here's the thing. I'm going to set everybody free today. You always do what you most want to do, okay? You always do what you most want to do. We all have the same amount of time. We just prioritize differently, right? And so it's better to say, don't quit saying, just stop saying, I don't have time, I don't have money, I don't have whatever. Don't say that anymore. It, 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 I'm telling you, this will be so liberating for you. Just say, I don't prioritize discipleship. Discipleship, Bible reading, generosity, I mean, whatever it is, is not a priority in my life. Just say that. Just start saying that rather than making the excuse of time. And I'm telling you, it'll be incredibly liberating for you because you'll just, you'll start to be honest with yourself and you'll say, okay, what am I prioritizing then? Don't say I don't have time because you do have time. You always do what you most want to do. Rather say discipleship, family worship, Bible study, prayer is not a priority in my life. And I'm telling you, if you'll hear yourself say those things, if you'll hear yourself say those things, it'll, 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 you'll start discipling yourself. You'll be like, oh, I probably need to listen to what I just said there. You always do what you most want to do. It, it's, it's all, it, all, it all matters on what you're prioritizing. My point is, is that you're all filling your time with something, and you're all filling your mind and your heart with something. Everyone is being discipled by something. It could be the news. It could be movies. It could be your Facebook feed. It could be relationships. What are you filling your mind with? What environment are you putting yourself in that your mind would be filled with what is true and commendable and excellent? If you're not filling your mind with these things, you'll never be strong in the Lord. No wonder you come in here today standing on something else than on the security and steadfastness of the Lord because you haven't filled your mind with the Lord. You haven't filled your heart with the Lord. Whatever you are thinking about affects where you stand. This is what Paul's saying. What you think about, that's where you're going to stand. And where you stand is who you are. Where you stand determines who you are. What you think about determines where you stand. And where you stand determines where you are and who you are. This is why this is important. This is why it's good that you're here. This is why community groups, this is why Bible study is important. What are you filling your mind with? This is what Paul is saying. Now, how does Paul end? Well, there's kind of a larger section here in the end. And I wish I had time to go through the whole thing, but let me just give you two quick thoughts that Paul gives, and I'll give them to you. First of all, if you stand in the strength of the Lord, what Paul is saying here is you can be content. I've, I've done this. I'm standing in the Lord. I've been rejoicing in the Lord. I've been, I understand how to use my gifts. I've been going to the Lord in prayer. I've been filling my mind with what is true and right and excellent and praiseworthy. And therefore, Paul says this amazing thing, I can be content in every circumstance. That's an amazing thing. Whether I have a lot or I have a little, I can be content in every circumstance. And he gives this famous verse, Philippians 4.13. Now, I feel a little liberty at this point to help correct everybody's understanding of, or maybe not everybody's, but some of your understandings of Philippians 4.13. And I, I say this as a fellow, I used to misunderstand this verse guy, okay? So when I was like in high school and playing sports, I thought Philippians 4.13 meant I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means that even if the other team is better, I can beat them because Jesus is on my team, you know? That's what I thought Paul was saying there. And so like if we lost the game, 
If we lost the game, I think, well, I guess Christ didn't strengthen me because we lost and maybe he was on their team, you know. Okay, which is actually the exact opposite of what Philippians 4.13 really means. So if you've had the kind of football player style understanding of Philippians 4.13, there's grace here. But what Paul's actually saying is even if you lose the game, you're okay. You don't find your strength in football games. You don't find your strength in production and awesome things. No, you find your strength in the Lord who is constant, who gives you peace, who is balanced. Christ is my strength and not my circumstances, Paul is saying. And this is important. He says, I know both how to abound and how to be brought low. It's, it's, it's easy when you're brought low to, to think, okay, I need to hold on to the Lord, right? Because whatever brought you low didn't work out. But are you holding on to the Lord when you're abounding? That's the better question. Is Christ your strength when you're abounding? That's when it's hard to find your identity in the Lord. It's easy when you're brought low because you know how the things of this earth are failing you. You're brought low. But what about when you're closing every deal and you just, you know, you just went to Bora Bora. It's, it's, it's when you do that that it's hard to really rest and find your strength in the Lord. That's what Paul says. Paul's saying, it's okay to bore, bore. I know how to abound, but that's not my strength. I know how to, in Christ, I know how to be content in Christ, no matter if I'm high or no matter if I'm low. And then the last thing, and I love this, it's so balanced. This, this passage is so balanced. He says he thanks them for sharing in his suffering for recognizing that the hard things really were hard things. It's, it's easy for Christians, and let me just give you this warning. It's easy for us to hear this and kind of walk away with this false sense of, okay, well, I guess I gotta be happy all the time. That's what Jason's saying. That's not what I'm saying, okay? So don't misunderstand this. This is all about identity. Where's your identity? Where's your rest? What are you rejoicing in? Where are you looking? Where are you finding strength? That's what this sermon's about. It's not be happy all the time. And I think a lot of times Christians can have this false, you know, well, it's, hey, Jesus is Lord, you know? My mother just died, but what? Yeah. That's not what he's saying. Don't have a fake happiness about your life. You can be strong in the Lord and be incredibly sad. You can be strong in the Lord and be incredibly angry. The question, the, the secular response to sadness, to anger, to bad things is go do something else, right? The secular response is go do something fun. You know, go win, go, go get it. You know, you got knocked down, go do something better, go do something fun, you know, go, go, go appease your appetite and you'll forget about it. That's not the biblical response. The biblical response is high or low, be strong in the Lord, rest in the Lord. Let him restore your strength. Let him restore your poise. Let him restore your peace. And he will. And he does. And this is what Paul is saying here. There was times where I was really low and you shared with me. That's why we need the church, to remind ourselves of these things. This is why we need community. There is a constant joy. There is a constant strength, Paul says, and it's in the Lord. And so rejoice in him, rest in him, hide in him. Don't you see what Christianity is? Or maybe, you know, better put, don't you see how weird Christianity is? There's this old song uh, it's an old hymn. It was written in the 18th century by a guy named, I love this name. His name was Augustus Toplady. I know, strange. 
but he's a good hymn writer. And he wrote a song called Rock of Ages. And the song, I love the, listen to this, it says Rock of Ages cleft, or there's basically a place in the rock for me. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse from guilt and make me pure. Listen to this line. It says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my seal, could my zeal, no rest but no, no rest from zeal. Could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Don't you see what Christianity is? You know, some of you walked in here today thinking that Christianity is Look at all this righteousness I've brought to you. I've done good deeds. I'm a good person, and therefore God is pleased. Some of you walked in here thinking, oh, I've done like a great sacrament. I've done the thing that makes me a Christian, you know. I've been baptized, or when I was a kid, it was, have you prayed the prayer and walked the aisle? And, and my preacher would always say, if you pray this prayer and if you really mean it, and my confidence in, for salvation was in the fact that I really meant the prayer, and those other people didn't really mean it. That's, that's not, no. What is this saying? It's not in strength that we're saved. It's not an act. No, it's hiding. Naked. I bring nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. These aren't strength words. But the good news for us, the good news for you and for me, is that there is a rock. There is a rock. There is a rock that cannot be moved. There is a rock that is the Lord that is from everlasting to everlasting that can never be shaken. And the good news for us too is that that rock is cleft, meaning that, the, that he is open, the Lord is open. The Lord is open to receive us. The Lord is open to save us. The Lord has come close to us. He has opened the door and we can rest in him. We can rest in the rock don't you see, that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken, no matter what crashes against it. It's not fragile. It's not weak. So be strong in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words, these encouraging words of Paul. I pray that we would listen. I pray that our hearts would be open to hear of uh, the goodness of Christ, the one who is cleft for us, the one who is by his grace and by the power of his blood, Lord, as we sang earlier, open for us, Lord. The rock that should crush us has been opened to hide us. And so, Father, I pray that today we would hide in him, that we would rest in him, and so be strong. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.